I'm Jason Bailey-Losh, and you're listening to Seeing is Forgetting, conversations on contemporary art and culture in Los Angeles and beyond. You're listening to a special five-part series commissioned by Flag Art Foundation for their exhibition, The Times. The exhibition uses the New York Times as its point of departure and features over 80 artists, artist duos, and collectives who use the paper record to address and reframe issues that impact our everyday lives. I wanted to come at this from a completely different angle than producing an object for the space. As a sculptor, I felt like I needed to give something, but really, as an artist, I felt like I needed to create a starting place for you to come in and enrich the viewing experience for everybody involved. For me, that was talking to the people who actually work within the walls of the New York Times. So, in the next five interviews, I speak to editors and writers who work in different departments of the New York Times. We talk about why they do their jobs, how they do their jobs, and what it means to be a part of this institution that everybody knows about. The list of individuals that are included in this are Michael Owen, Rick Rojas, David Coleman, Andrea Canapel, and Randy Kennedy. I have to take the time also to thank all the people involved who helped me get these interviews because it wasn't easy and thank the Flag Art Foundation for allowing me to contribute to this great exhibition. So without further ado, here we go. being on the podcast. Of course. This is uh, slightly different because I traveled to New York to come speak with you and we're in your apartment and you, as you can hear in the background before you take off for a very exciting trip that you're going to do. Yeah. We have an office in London that works very closely with the group that with, with my department which is called the News Desk. And the News Desk is it's funny because it's a sort of designation that's been around for a long time at the Times and other news organizations have news desks and they sort of mean different things. Like it, it, it had a really different meaning for the Times in a more print dominated era, but the, the news desk has come to be kind of the digital nerve center of the Times. It's where we take the content that has been assigned and reported and edited and published by the sort of originating desk, so the international desk or the business desk. Okay. And they basically, in most cases, they sort of complete a story and then they hand it off to us and our, one of our sort of main responsibilities is to, to manage how we get that content to the audience. And the, your title at the Times is editor, editor of, the news, of the news desk in digital. Yeah, so I mean the news desk is basically just a digital operation. Is it? Okay. Yeah. In the last year or two, we've actually spun all of the print functions. All, all of the desks in the newsroom are in the process of spinning their print functions entirely off to one designated group called the Print Hub, whereas the print operation used to sort of be the, the engine at the heart of the newsroom, and print is still an important part of our business and our relationship with Times readers. In the course of becoming more digitally oriented and growing our digital audience, we want people around the newsroom to be thinking less about the mechanics of print and more about the mechanics of storytelling and the content journalism, right? 
and digital audiences and growing future audiences. And how you reach those audiences in new ways and formats that work with the audience instead of work just as the times think they should work. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's I mean, it's interesting because it's like a shift from like a, t in some ways an almost totally one way relationship to the audience where it was like there was this single, I mean, I have today's print paper on my kitchen table here. It's, it was this one thing that got produced at one time of day and distributed once and it was monolithic package of everything right. that the times had to tell you and the relationship of course is days is totally different from that because the landscape of information is sort of breathing across the 24-hour cycle well and this is one of my questions when does your job end it's got to be one of those jobs that it doesn't right well so that that's actually the occasion of my trip is that the office in london is in large part the news desk for the new york overnight oh they do a coverage well, you guys are asleep, essentially. Yeah, so there's always at least one editor on duty on the news desk. And there's like, sort of like a supervising editor, and then there are a few editors who work on the individual platforms, like the homepage and the mobile apps. Right now, we're testing a new version of our home screen, so there's an editor who's working on that platform at all times. When they're working on that new platform and you're testing it, are you running the actual news that you're running so it's on a back page people can't see, but it's still what it would look like today yeah. if it was put out? Exactly. So, And actually, we are showing that to 5% of our mobile audience right now. Do so, they even know they're getting it? Yeah. So if you come to the Times and you're allocated into this test group by the back end. So systems, it's a beta version, basically. Yeah, basically. It's like a, it's like a test. A and beta test version. Gathering feedback about it and seeing how people interact with it. And, you know, it's a, it, this is unlike any product release we've ever done at the Times. It's, we're phasing in the, the first version of it as we see how the audience interacts with it. We're What's going to change? Changing it. One example, I mean, this is kind of in the weeds, but one example of something that's changing is that when we initially launched this test to 1% of our mobile audience, we couldn't package stories together. So you could have like one big story and then another big story, and they were sort of of equal, equal weight. I see that often. They're having the same reference point sometimes to yeah. the content. Yeah, exactly. So there could be two stories about the Trump administration, and there was no way to show a relationship between them in the first version of the home screen. Right. So I think this week we'll be sending out a new version that will let you have sort of like a primary story and then a secondary story that shows up in obvious relationship to the first So one. as the editor or one of the editors, you guys will decide what is the top story on that and what filters down to secondary stories that fill in the gaps yeah. to the first story? Yeah. And those are, those are decisions that we're making on our existing platforms already. I, I would assume. It's like what gets the front page and what, what gets secondary to fill in for yeah. the front page piece. Yeah. And even like, you know, the, the sort of most complicated place that we do this is on the desktop homepage because with a mobile feed, you just have sort of one stack of story. You know, it's yeah. one axis. But with the desktop, you have columns right. in the layout as well. So there are all of these sort of different ways that we can place different kinds of emphasis, various stories. I've noticed that as well too, because I, I read the Times every day, and I do it on desktop and I do it on mobile. And yeah. the way that I hit the content is completely different on both of those those platforms. And specifically what you're talking about too with the, the additional stories coming down. Right now, if you scroll through, I think it's on the mobile, you scroll through and then the secondary stories come down at the bottom of the page underneath the other, the main story you've been reading as sort of, I think they're slightly suggested based upon the topic that you've been reading on. What's funny about this is like before the last couple of years, I 
I personally never thought about the decisions that went into that kind of experience. There is a, a team within the Times building who decides what you see at the bottom of an article when you get to the end of it. And they make, that's not just like a casual decision, you know, it's like they test various different, different like options. They'll have, and again, this is something where part of our audience might see one version of it and right. another part of an audience might see another version and we see which one drives more engagement. The goal being to get people to spend more time with us and to be drawn further into the report and to understand, you know, because we are really explicitly a, a subscription-driven business, all, all of us are thinking about ways to habituate our audience and to help them understand the breadth and value of the times. One of the things, and this has to have changed drastically from, or dramatically, from when this started. Because I remember when the Times started really going digital and putting, pushing that digital subscription, and I looked at your, your CV, you were a member of that sort of team to begin with, right? Or I came to the Times just after they had started charging for digital access. Right. Um, the, well, it was like a, a year or two after the, the start of that. So it was fresh. And it, it was fresh, an amazingly successful model. Hundreds of thousands of people signed up in the first year to pay for digital access right. to the Times. That was a pretty controversial moment because this thing that had been free and sort All of Also went to subscription based, yeah. Yeah, and you had your like article limit per month. And, the, and I, like, I remember as a non-Times employee yeah. at the time feeling some resentment about that. Well, the, the, all the other articles from the other places is, are the time, is the Times failing? Right. Is this why they're, they're paying, getting, and for a year or so after that, that's what the conversation was. Can they make this work? Yeah, and it was, I mean, it felt like a really big gamble. Like there were some, the Wall Street Journal had done a paywall already, but that was a, such a different audience because it's- Completely, it's a financial- a business, and yeah. so it's a, the financial model there is really different. And so, so the paywall did work for the Times. After I had been there for a couple of years, basically we knew that the, we thought that the largest period of growth in sort of the baseline digital subscriptions had started to level off. So the business side of the paper, which is less separate from the newsroom than it used to be in some ways. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, we can talk more about that if you want to, but basically the people upstairs decided that we should launch a new news product. It would cost less than the, the ordinary digital subscription, and it would be sort of oriented toward people who had a lower willingness to pay for news and it would give them sort of a reduced subset of the time. But at the same time, you can't devalue the people who are already paying a certain amount of money right. in the content that they're getting. Yeah, so you don't want to undercut or like cannibalize your subscription base exactly. that you've gotten. But we did believe, and there was research that suggested that there was a, another addressable audience if we, if we had like a lower tier. So what's the difference in the content that they receive then for the lower tier of, like it, does the content change or does the, how does that change when the, the pay scale changes? So when the app came out, it was called NYT Now, and it, I think it was $8 a month, and it was just a, it was just a more limited subset of articles. And we as editors could choose which articles those were, there was just a limit on the absolute number that were available at a given time. I got you. It ended up in some ways being a great success for us because it, it taught us different ways of working. It, um, 
when I went to work as an editor on that project, I was sitting in a room with product managers and designers and software engineers and marketing people. We were literally like sitting in a room and drawing on whiteboards and That's crazy to think about. For us it was totally unprecedented to do that kind of We were starting from scratch, right? Scale. Yeah. And the problem was that what we ended up creating was because in large part because it was this collaboration between the newsroom and the rest of the organization, it ended up being a tremendously satisfying app. The rest of the things that I've done at the Times, I've never seen such sort of mass adoration for something. Positive response. There was for that app. Um, From your readers? From our readers. You would get emails from people and they would just talk. I mean, it was really personal. Like There was this really sort of emotional component of their relationship to that app. So instead of being instead of coming across as a lower value in some ways it, it came across as a higher value so we ended up making that app that's crazy yeah no it was like it, there would be no way to even figure that that was going to happen though, it was, either it was wildly it was a wildly unpredictable experience in many ways it basically just didn't do what it needed to for the business so we made it free and tried that sort of business model for a while and then while that was going on Many of the people who had worked on NYT Now, including myself, sort of went back into the core news operation and started changing the way that we did things there. So, Because you'd seen how it operated and worked and worked well, so you were bringing it back into the other part of the news organization to, to push that part of it as well, too. Exactly. So it was kind of like we had been in this, you know, like R&D state, and, and, and we were physically outside the newsroom. And then we came back and the lessons that we had learned and the successes that we had had there started influencing what we were doing with our core product. An example of that, now there's a whole portfolio of them, but it started with the morning briefing, the morning news briefing, which is something that goes up on our homepage and our apps and it's a newsletter. And it's just sort of like a rundown of like the need to know news of the day. That was something that started in the, it started for NYT Now and it started in in the spirit of sort of trying to reach a new audience. So there was kind of a more, it just took a more personal approach. It was, there were things about Times style, for instance, like writing style, which is carefully prescribed in this. There's like a whole book of. That you get when you go to the Times? Yeah. Really? It's well, you don't. I mean, you don't get a physical copy anymore because it's online. But but everybody is read this. Yeah, (laughs) this is what you're supposed to write like. Yeah, like you're expected to know. And uh, you know, sometimes reporters might not necessarily be as familiar with it. But the whole editing infrastructure at the Times is sort of okay. So that so that's a that's a question then that I have on that. So the actual journalists will write whatever the journalists write, but as an editor putting that stuff together, you're dictating what needs to happen based upon this information that you're provided by the Times as this is your outline of how you're supposed to put this together. Yeah, I mean, the, the Times is a funny place because it's, and, and we're kind of reckoning with this, frankly, because the, you know, the landscape is shifting around us. But up to this point, the Times has still been a place where there were a lot of layers between the sort of person on the ground doing the reporting and the audience. The end content that came out to the audience. Yeah. yeah. It's like if we were a startup publication, there might be like a reporter and probably one editor who would right. handle story assignment and they might even do copy editing depending on the size of the publication and they would do, you know, digital production to prepare something for publication online and get it to its audiences. Right. And th- and that would be I mean, so you'd have two or three people involved in that. 
at the Times, you still have an assigning editor who's working with the reporter. And the reporter might, depending on who it is, they might turn in 1,200 words of perfect copy, or they might just feed in like the things that they're actually observing. And that, that can depend on the person. It can depend on the sort of... And somebody else puts it context. into uh, a text, basically. And yeah, and their editor will, will be responsible for taking the sort of observations of the reporter and forming it into a, like a coherent story. So uh, on uh, question about that then, there can only be so many types of reporters that do that type of thing. Right. And I would assume that's not going to be one of the newbies who's coming in. That's somebody who's been with the Times for a while and has a certain way of like putting things together, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. Like we're, we're, we're in this moment of transition away from hyper-specialization across this sort of assembly line right. through the newsroom which in many ways was tied to the print model, but also was just tied to sort of, there were different realities about what we could afford, you know? So there, there was this like very sort of lavish editing apparatus that we were able to support for a long time. And so, you know, the reporter would file to an editor and that, that one or two editors would look at the sort of structure of the story and work with the reporter on, on shaping it. And then it would be handed off to a copy editor, and a copy editor might spend a whole shift looking at one or two stories. And they would, they would be looking not just at sort of the, the writing quality and the construction of the sentences and the structure of the piece, but a lot of times they also would be working with the reporter on the shape of the story. Building a story. Or on even, yeah. you know, like fact-checking. Like there was just a, a, a huge amount of sort of methodical, almost marinating <laughs> for a lot of these stories through the editing process. And then, in the digital age, that would be handed off to a, a web producer. And that person's entire job was to handle the digital components of publishing that piece. So they would be adding indexing tags to it so that it would appear in, in the right places in right. certain databases. They'd be writing you know, headlines that are friendly to Google search. They'd be writing social copy for Twitter and Facebook. You know, all of these things that in some ways like really sort of belong with the person who's originating the content right. were spread out across this like specialized... Well, the infrastructure right. there is gigantic. Yeah. It's that is a, a vast amount of people who got their hands all on one story before it even reaches the audience. Yeah. So the turnaround time on like a story like that has got to be, it's got to be stretched out. That's got to be difficult to get a story out quickly because it's got to go through umpteen people to get to... The, the reader. You're basically talking about a 24-hour cycle there. You know, the first print deadline is at 9 p.m. Eastern time. Suppose you start work at 10 a.m. You've got most of the day to get through that process. And well, and part of the problem you deal with as well, too, then, is you're, if you're coming in and you're doing your 10 a.m., Europe is already halfway, they're almost gone. Yeah. So you've got to deal with Europe, and then at the end of your day, Asia hits or middle of your day here, for me, LA, it's always end of my day, Yeah. and you're starting to deal with Asia, so this is part of the problem with that news cycle, is that you've got to keep up on how the reaction is to each one of those events through the different channels that are happening all over the world at the same time. Yeah, exactly. And, and the other thing is, like, breaking news is just that it's, it's huge for us in terms of what draws the audience to our digital platforms. Is it? And you have a major role in that, right? I do. I mean, that's, that's sort of the... In some ways, that's kind of the principal concern of the news desk is to deal with breaking news. It's not the only thing we do, but it, it, when it's happening, it's the most urgent thing. And so we're, we're responsible for coordinating that coverage and thinking about what the lines of reporting are going to be and working with the desks 
often just to like get them to sort of quickly turn out something publishable. So that greatly shortens the, the timeline. And we as an organization have had to learn to work much more quickly. There's still a pretty heavyweight sort of editing component of that. About what goes out for the breaking news? Yeah, and just, just like the process. Like between reporting and publishing, there are still always at least two editors and often more who are looking at the copy before it turns into a published story. How many editors are there at the Times for like your news division? That's a great question. I mean, it's, it's hundreds. Is it? Yeah. So in your, in your section, the news section, there's hundreds? I mean, I have, there are about 25 people on my team and all of those are editors. Really? Yeah. I mean, the news desk is basically just an editing operation. Yeah. We don't. We're, we're loosely associated with a team of sort of rapid response breaking news reporters, yeah. and the and the people who write the briefings. So there is some content generation going on in the neighborhood, but the news desk per se is just about sort of selecting and presenting the news to the audience. Really molding what that audience sees. Yeah, and monitoring the signals from the audience to understand what that relationship is. So I had taken a bunch of notes before I came, but one of what I was thinking about, and this leads into it, is do you feel the weight of that? You're basically figuring out what the readers see and what that content is going to be and deciding what's important to people. Some of that is driven based on what works for you guys and what drives people reading at the paper. We've seen that a lot today with generating news based on what makes sales, but also that's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, I mean, it, it is, and it's... One of the f- interesting things about the Times is that most of the time, that responsibility is widely shared. We have a news meeting every day at 9.30 where everyone from the executive editor to the books editor or the culture editor are assembled in a room together and talking about the news of the day and the, and the sort of coverage that's coming. So that's how we sort of symbolically start our day is by coming together and talking about what the priorities and the themes of the day are and where we're going to place the most emphasis. So in a general sense, there's a lot of sort of organizational decision making. But then in the moment, there's just shit happens and you have to deal with it. So I remember after the Boston Marathon bombing, that was just sort of a crazy story throughout because I came in from my shift. At the time, I was I was editing the homepage. Um, and I came in at at 3 p.m. and it was Pulitzer Day. And on on the day that the Pulitzer Prizes are announced, if the Times is winning something, which typically happens, we do, (laughs) (laughs) hundreds of people gather in this central area in the newsroom and there's just sort of this like pandemonium while um, the prizes are announced and then... Like celebrating... Yeah, like champagne, you know, like someone stands sort of on the staircase, like there's a landing halfway up and and all of the people who are associated with the winners give speeches, both the winners and their editors, and it's like this big... That's pretty amazing. Oh, but no, it's, I mean, it's... That's so cool. It's incredibly cool, and to just like sort of be sitting in the middle of it is, it's it's one of many moments... So much energy. ...kind of have to like pinch myself, you know. Um, But on that particular day people are shoulder to shoulder in the newsroom like I can't talk directly to any of my colleagues who are producing the digital news report and we see the first wire bulletins um, about Boston yeah the jackhammers in the background <laughs> it's like it's very New York we're sitting there people are jammed into the newsroom and we start seeing the first wire bulletins that something has happened at the finish line of the 
Boston Marathon. Wait, so where are you seeing the bulletins? Like your own team? Well, no, from actually from the wire services. From, from the wire service that comes through. I think AP and Reuters both had sort of initial breaking news alerts about that. These days, the, the first reports would be coming from social media, like almost always. It's very rare for a news service to, to break that kind of sort of situational news. So how, I guess this is another question. How do you guys source that social media stuff? Are you doing it just by your own private social media? It's a combination of a lot of things, and it's such a sort of rich ecosystem at this point that there are a lot of services that are that have sort of sprung up just to help news editors and others who who rely heavily on information from social media right. to understand what's going on. So we'll get. I mean, there are services that will sort of alert you if there's like a cluster of tweets about something and they're, they're based on machine learning. They recognize patterns. They say it looks like news is happening over here based on this you know, series yeah. of tweets that just happened at a particular location or mentioning a certain thing. So we'll often get... You'll get an alert that tells you that this stuff is happening and to go check out that source and figure out if that's what's actually going on. Right. And then it's on, it's on us, it's on our reporters to actually verify it. To vet the information that's coming in. But the, the tip is often just from people tweeting about stuff. What a change from the way that news is traditionally gathered, too. Yeah. Both the way and just the, the sort of the speed, like the metabolism is so different. It's going to be very stressful. I mean, it, it is in some ways, and it also isn't. We have this sort of particular place in the news ecosystem where... The times. Yeah. I mean, everyone in the room has the sort of journalist's blood of wanting to be first on stuff. Like, that's just such a sort of basic instinct. Right. But we also have sort of a, a, an institutional obligation and, and like a, a brand, if you will, obligation to, to be not only accurate, but also to really be able to tell an explanatory story about what's going on. So you'll see this a lot with the way that people do news alerts about something. I'm struggling right at the moment to figure an example. It ha- <laughs> it ha- I mean, it happens all the time that you'll see all of our competitors alert something, and they'll say the House Oversight Committee Chairman Jason Chaffetz is not going to run for office again. In, right, which was huge news in 2018. Which was huge news, and actually, we did break that one, so this is a bad example. But <laughs> <laughs> let's say you didn't. <laughs> but supposing we hadn't, you would have seen. The Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post, in most cases, they would just say, Chaffetz says he won't run again in 2018 or whatever. Sort of like staccato headline, like very little information. Yeah. And it's just they get it out there first? Yeah. Which for most people, unless they're like incredibly avid news consumers, is not like that's not the kind of thing that they need to know like right now instead right. of exactly. three minutes from now. So our approach has become to take those three minutes to say, let's get content. Let's like telegraph a little bit about who this is and why it's a big deal that he's not going to run again. Like there's only so much you can do on a, on a lock screen of a phone. Right. But we've found that you can actually tell pretty, pretty robust stories in that space if you take the time to do it. It's essentially like a tweet where yeah. you have a, a character count yeah. that you know you have for the, the breaking news, but you're getting as much information and content into that one little thing that you're sending out to all of your subscribers. Yeah. And so we'll spend, I mean, there, <clears throat> there might be three or four editors who are sitting and working in Slack, which is our group communication tool, 
just chatting back and forth sort of different formulations of that alert. My colleague might do one and then I'll copy and paste it and just like tweak one thing that I think makes the wording work so better. So you guys are all sitting at your desk at the same time all having this conversation in text form going back and forth. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's often like this sort of flurry and a lot of times it's like there's a little bit of a um, almost like a satire element to it because we get so deeply into the microscopic nuances of the language. Yeah. And sometimes it's really irritating to, to some people in the room that we're not just like sending something. Yeah. Um, because of the competitive instinct. But yeah. we've sort of just come, we've gravitated to this place where that feels like we can really sort of differentiate ourselves with our audience by telling a more story in that space. I just listened to an interview with uh, David Remnick from The New Yorker and he said he called The New York Times the most ambitious news gathering organization around and it struck me as being something I didn't know really I I understood that but I, I read a lot of news and I didn't really understand what that meant yeah but you talking about this and about the content that you're putting out there really helps explain that that statement to me yeah well and it's funny because like I I said I sit a few seats away from the masthead editors who are the ones who oversee the newsroom. I sit with a lot of people who are involved in breaking news and in distributing the news to our audience. But all of us are like pretty far away from the pe people on the ground who are actually doing this. And so it's easy to forget even in, in the headquarters in Midtown Manhattan that we have hundreds of people all over the world who are seeing with their own eyes what's going on. And I think historically, I mean, this is something that we're, as, as an institution, we're like really sort of thinking about and focused on is communicating better. Our existence is staked on getting people to believe that the Times is good enough to be worth paying money for. Paying essentially what <laughs> right. a cup of coffee is gonna cost you. Yeah, well, I mean, less than that. Like it's like yeah. over the course of a month, a lot less than all of those companies. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, like there are all these things that just sort of like by tradition you didn't call attention to. Instead of saying so-and-so is on the ground in Baghdad and just spent the day in fatigues and goggles with a military convoy like avoiding IEDs on the side of the road, nearly died and filed this story. We don't say that, we just have like a little thing at the beginning that says you know, outside Mosul, Iraq. And that's the, the date, it's called the Dateline, and it, it sort of specifies where the reporter was when they filed right. it. I mean, it was mostly forbidden even to use the first person in most times reporting up until like just the very recent past. Is that right? That was yeah. in your book of to-dos and to not-to-dos? Yeah, there was this sort of like implicit expectation that we should disappear. And that it that it should just you are be not the news about the event. The news is the news. You are not the news, though. And that and that's absolutely true. But there's also it's possible to, and I think we did. I think it, it's possible to overcorrect on that. It's almost like we were going to to great lengths to hide the fact that our reporters had done this hard and and sometimes heroic work to actually observe these things and get a story to the rest of the world about them. So it's been a it's been like a a sort of change of tone within the times over the last year there's been a very explicit pivot on that toward emphasizing where we are and sort of saying when we present a story to our readers here's the deal like here's how this got to you it didn't just materialize on a teletype machine in Manhattan like it was so sadness. was the reason for that an adjustment to how people were reacting to what the news is now 
And specifically, I want to, I'm talking like Trump and fake news. So if you're this thing that's just sitting there on a hill and not really a person having a conversation, does that, is that, are you trying to humanize the news a little bit or what do you, what's the, what was the impetus for making that happen? I mean, it's interesting because we actually started referring to this as like the credibility project, right. sort of informally and, and well before the election, long before fake news was sort of a headline. Which drives me nuts, by the way. I hate it. Just the phrase itself. The, f- the phrase itself. I just hate the idea because it becomes a blanket statement for anything you don't want to hear. It's so insidious. And, and it really is catchy. Yeah. So it just, it, you can throw it out there and all of a sudden it, it delegitimizes whatever it's talking about. Yeah. It's an incredibly, I mean, it's a, it's a really cheap sort of rhetorical munition that can just, can like just toss them off and kind of invalidate what your opponent is saying. But even before that happened, we were working on this project because we knew, we saw, frankly, we saw some of our competitors doing a better job of drawing out the fact that they had people on the ground doing this reporting. And that's something, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of a matter of like relatability with the audience. Yeah. A lot of hard news is just sort of classically and famously hard to feel connected to if you're sitting in New York City because it's so abstracted and it just... It well, it's why opinion well. pages work so well is because you have you're empathetic to what they're saying. Right, and there's a, it's that perspective, like just knowing that there's a, a human on the other end of things. Yeah. I mean, going back for a second to NYT now, one of the things that made people, and I, like I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not being hyperbolic. They, they were like, there were many people who were really fanatical about this app. And when we, we eventually shut it down because- Oh, you did? Yeah, because a lot of the things that we had done for it had infused the core of our report. And it, it wasn't growing our business in the way that we had hoped for it to. So we sort of, in a, in a very sincere way, tried to bring the things that were good about it back into the, into the court report. And I think succeeded at that. But one of the things that people really went nuts about in NYT Now was that if you read through the feed, you would get this very explicit sense that there was a person on the other end of it, either through little flourishes of humor or just like there, there was, was that accidental or were you doing that no, it was purpose? very intentional yeah it was something I mean when I I remember sending notes out to my team when I was the editor of that app saying like please lean toward what feels risky to you in terms of voice be funny be not edgy because I think trying to be edgy if you're comes off as fake is, yeah it's like that, that that's the and that's not your gig but there but there is this thing where it's people I think a lot of journalists, wherever they are, are sort of trained to remove any trace of themselves, even sort of tonally or rhetorically from what they're doing. Right. And we're trying to really push back against that because we saw the more that that voice was there, the more that there was sort of a knowingness to what we were writing to our audience, the more people responded to it. It wasn't just like they were absorbing it. People would notice it and send us emails saying, please do more of this, like this is great. So I think there's just sort of this trend overall at the time, and, and I, I think it's been shaped by forces in media and journalism generally. But and social media. And social media, absolutely. It's yeah. like you, you kind of have to like show your work, and that means surfacing the personality as well as the, the reporting. And obviously that has to be done nimbly. There are risks associated with it. But Well, and it's interesting too because you talk about all these filters that everything goes through to get to the end. Yeah. 
for that to survive through all of these filters and get to the end product, it can't come off as being like what you said, fake or, or forced. Well, and it's interesting because you see reporters, if they're tweeting, that's not getting edited. So there's this pipeline that's going sidestepping that whole process and just going directly to it's got to be risky too the reader it is risky i mean it, it creates it doesn't create as many problems as it could that's what i was wondering like somebody's got to be reading that content and saying oh wait a minute you can't say that yeah i mean to some extent that's true but is there somebody at the times who's that's that's just their job there is a, there's a guy at the time there's a, a really like fantastic nimble creative editor who's in charge of standards and his job is not to say, generally, I mean, he could talk about it much more ably than I could, but my experience with him has been that he doesn't go up to people and say, you can't tweet that. Right. He says, here is what we're trying to do, and here are things that are going to undermine that. And if you tweet something that expresses your adoration for a political candidate, it's going to undercut anything. You're covering you... a different political yeah. candidate. Not that anyone would ever do that, but there are subtler examples, and there are ways it gets to the heart of this sort of issue of journalistic objectivity and being able to step back from a subject and give a fair accounting of it that's separate from your own biases. That doesn't mean pretending you don't have biases. It means Everybody understanding does. what they are right. and being able to step away from them and account for them in your reporting and correct for them, which is complicated. Incredibly complicated. And the Times, and correct me if I'm wrong, the Times is seen as sort of a liberal paper. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So knowing that and knowing the content that you have to put out there, I've seen recently there was a, a to-do about people canceling their time subscriptions because a non-liberal piece of content is all of a sudden being put into the paper where people don't agree with. Yeah. So how do you deal with that? And he was an op-ed call. I mean, he is an op-ed call. So but his people channel. don't read it as op-ed, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was interesting because we actually sent up a, a mobile push alert. And we should fill, fill in the listeners on what this is. Can you explain it briefly? Yeah. So every, I mean, many of the apps on your phone do this. If you get a text message, it pops up on the, on the screen of your phone. If it's locked, you just get a little bubble with the right. text of the message. So any app can do the same kind of thing. They can send you an alert. News apps all do this. The New York Times does this. If you open up our app for the first time, you're given the option to opt in to receiving notifications. And if you opt in, you basically start getting text messages from us. I mean, they're not going through that, that plumbing, but they, they are written very sort of intentionally with the sensibility of someone, of, of a person speaking to another person. And, and they've evolved a fair bit from where they were even a few years ago for us. But the original intention was if there's holy shit news, we're going to tell you about it right away because yeah. you're going to want to know about it. And then you can swipe on the alert and it'll open up an article and you can read more about it. But it's become this mechanism for sort of drawing people into all aspects of our report. So whereas we used to just have one channel and it was for breaking news and we would only send people alerts when there was really big stuff going on. We now have five other channels that people can opt into. And so they're all very specific. Yeah, there's one for politics, there's one for sports, there's one for New York, there's one for business, and then one that's sort of a catch-all called Top Stories. And Top Stories is a place where we'll send. Would this be similar to like your news of the day that comes up on the beginning of the page in the morning, or? It's sort of a different way into it. Um, like if we publish a review, say the Harper Lee book, had been published today, 
when we have this channel available. If, if the channel wasn't available when that book came. But if we did, we would use that channel because it's something we think essentially like our, the whole audience we can get to potentially is going to be interested in this. Like it's a major event. But it's not the same as a freeway overpass crumbling in Milwaukee right. and dozens of people dying. Like it's, there's, a, there's a, obviously a very different quality to that. So we're trying to, in a selective way, broadcast other parts of the times to our audience. There was a really good Q&A, basically, question and answer that you had, that you sent me, and it was you, you discussing with uh, another editor at the Times, oh, what makes breaking news? And one of the questions that a reader had once was, how does, um, I think it was in regards to, how does an 80-year-old priest dying get the headline of a breaking news, but then uh, a child bomber kills 40 people yeah. And how does one get in the other? And it, the perceived notion that the reader was es essentially prescribing to is that one is worth more than the other. Yeah. Right. So what I thought was really interesting is that your answer to that was it's all balanced based on there's so many factors. So how many news alerts have gone on during the day, but what other news is actually taking place at that yeah. time? Yeah. This question is as old as journalism. It's like what... It used to be, it, and it what still gets is, the front page. what gets the front page. There are literally hundreds of factors that go into that decision yeah. making. And one of the biggest factors is just the world is messy and we know certain things at one point and there are certain things we don't know and we kind of have to act on the information we have. And it's just this kind of, there might be huge breaking news somewhere, but we don't have a reporter there. So it takes us a while to confirm it. And, and everybody else might be like blasting something. And that confirmation is really important. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's sort of essential to, to who we are. I mean, the decision about whether or not to alert something is, <laughs> there's a great deal of mental and emotional energy that goes into, into deciding those. The good thing is that because we do have more channels these days that we can send things on, in some ways the bar is lower because we can send stuff about things that are of interest in a bunch of different categories. So things don't get missed. Yeah. I'd like to talk about you a little bit. Sure. When I was doing my research for this, I found a bunch of information on you at the Times, but why did you get into, were you a reporter as well? No, so I've never been a reporter. I, I, I once reported a fairly substantial story for uh, the weekly, the like alt-weekly paper in Salt Lake City, which is where I'm from. But I started in journalism because I was friends with the editor of the college paper my freshman year, and he said... Where did you go to school? I went to Pomona College in Southern California. He said, you know, you should come get a job on the paper, like it's a good work-study thing to do. What were you studying for? What were you doing? Was it journalism was a, or not? I was a philosophy major. So it's a... It's you had no prospects of getting a job in the future. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I doomed myself from day one, just philosophy, and was saved by this friend who told me about the newspaper. And so I started working for the school paper my first semester of college. And I actually worked on production. I was the production editor. So I was sort of managing all of the like logistics of at that point, printing the paper. And we, we had this sort of like antiquated process for doing that. You know, your position would change every semester. And so I worked on- So you learn all facets of what the paper is basically. Yeah. While I was doing that, I, I reported one or two stories. That's never been the main event for me. A lot of my career, and I think this is true for a lot of people, has just been sort of something happens at the right moment. Like the, the 
a door opens up and you meet the right person yeah so I had a good friend in college who was a few years older than me and he graduated when he graduated he went to work for Ariana Huffington of the Huffington Post although that was before the Huffington Post existed so he worked for her as a researcher oh interesting in her life before the Huffington Post she she wrote um, many books but she was also a newspaper columnist so she was living in this sort of, you know, commentary world, and she had a small staff at her home in, in Brentwood, in Los Angeles. And one of the people on that staff was this, this researcher who would help sort of prepare her for her TV appearances and her columns and the radio show she was on. And so Noah got in touch with me a few weeks before... This is I, your friend. Yeah, before I was supposed to graduate. I, I, I ended up graduating later, but... <laughs> I was facing the end of college and not quite sure what I was going to do. <laughs> and Noah messaged me one day and he said, hey, I, I think Ariana is looking for a researcher. You know, you should apply for the job. So I sent my resume and borrowed a friend's car and drove to Brentwood from college, which was, you know, probably an hour and a half drive and got there and interviewed with her staff and talked to her for about five minutes. And she hired me. And I, was, uh, I started out as an intern making a, a paltry wage. <laughs> but I was just really psyched to like, have something to do and stay in LA for the summer. So I started working for her the very same week that the Huffington Post launched. Oh, that's intense. Most of the personnel for the Huffington Post and the, the sort of core editorial operation was in New York. But Ariana was still very firmly based in Los Angeles. There was sort of a a satellite Huffington Post operation that sprung up in her office and I, I became an editor for the Huffington Post and I worked with a lot of the contributors to the just by being default by being there and filtering this information that came through yeah I was just there and she sort of got a sense that I could put a sentence together and she was really cool about sort of saying you're five years old but you can <laughs> take I'll, this I'll let you like, run with it try this stuff that's pretty amazing to have somebody that gives you that opportunity yeah because that's what you needed it was exposure to so many things that have been useful ever since then, including I, w- I would sit on the phone with these like big names and, and edit their stuff. And I had to sort of build up the confidence to say, well, to talk to somebody and, and tell them that that content needs to be adjusted. Yeah. And, and to work with their material. So I did that for about a year. It was a really taxing job. I mean, there was that's not very long. Everything's relative. I, I, <laughs> It was a really long year. It, it, was, a, it was an action-packed year. Yeah. And I left and went to work for the LA Times. They were hiring a, a, a web producer for politics because there was an election in California for governor happening that fall. And a bunch of initiatives and the editor who was in charge of digital at the LA Times wanted to sort of try really doubling down on state What year was this? Coverage. So this was 2006. Okay. And Schwarzenegger was up for re-election. And this is the set, like digital content, it's a totally different thing back then. It was very, very, very print-centric at that point. The digital operation at the LA Times, and this, this was true, the same thing was true at the Washington Post, it was true at the New York right. Times. The digital operation was located for a while in a completely different building. Oh, is that right? And then by the time I got there, it was on a completely different floor from the newsroom. And that's so, not the case now? It's not the case now. No, they, the LA Times integrated the digital and, and the rest of the newsroom while I was there. In some ways, it feels like it was a, t- a totally different world. I, the thing that's still true is that print 
is the hardest thing you have to do if you're a newspaper. I mean, just logistically generating these physical objects and getting them to hundreds of thousands of people every day. It's like a, it's, it's been so routinized that it doesn't really even, and you know, it seems like such a commodity right. at this point because we've had newspapers for hundreds of years and it's kind of no big deal that it just shows up. But like, if you think about like just having like your own proprietary delivery service and this and getting there the same day that the news is taking that that's always blown my mind is yeah. that I can have this print thing full of content the morning of right just the the quickness of the work of of, of writing the words is amazing but right. then the, then the process of getting well and going through all those editors too yeah like right. we just talked about right there's like both sort of the like intellectual process and then there's the like mechanical distributive process and, it, and, and they're both staggering so that is to say that I think a lot of people who work in digital media are pretty hard on, on newspapers because of their print centricity it is a problem but it's also in some ways how could it be otherwise like when you have to sustain this massive logistical operation every day I mean that's that's going to hold a fair amount of sway of over what you're doing viewed through that lens I think a lot of news organizations that have a print component have made really admirable progress over the last 20 years toward basically inventing a new way of talking to their audience and and taking something that had been that they had gotten down to a science that was and adjusting for today yeah, and like finding like a completely new way to connect the, the brains of the journalists. Yeah. And that's essentially what your job is. Right. To find the ways to reach those people that is going to work for tomorrow, not right now. That's like the thing that's really, that I, that I love about my job, right. is that there's this sort of very traditional, conventional guiding the coverage part of it. It's like what's going on today and how are we going to cover it? Like that, there's that sort of classic newspaper thing. And then there's also, like at the same time, but almost sort of using a different, many different parts of your brain, at the same time, there's this imperative to like invent a way of, of reaching people that's not the print paper because it's probably not gonna last forever. I mean, basically, you know, I like, I like to say that the thing that's valuable about the New York Times is the knowledge and perspective and sort of physical placement throughout the world of yeah. the journalists that make it up. It's not, it's not the newspaper. I mean, the newspaper is like a beautiful object. And, and the physical form, right. Yeah. That's just kind of what we ended up making all of that knowledge and perspective and expertise into. It was just a way to get that other stuff out there for people to see. It's like how we could do that yeah. with the tools that were available for hundreds of years. So you were in L.A., you were at the Times in L.A. Yeah. And then what? Um, so I worked there for five years. That is a long time. In the news operation. That's a while. Yeah, it was, it was a while. I was really... I was really comfortable there. Like I liked working there. It was hard because the the LA Times is just the company or the sort of series of companies that have, that have owned the Times have just been criminally incompetent. Oh, really? I mean, it's just like I don't mean that necessarily literally, but there's, maybe it's I, yeah. I, like I wouldn't rule it out. So living under the cloud of a malicious owner was difficult. And, and watching people sort of parade out the door. Succession of layoffs was really hard to watch there. That's tough. But that said, like, I, I had a really good gig. I was working on... Did you stay in that same role the whole time or frontier. not? So I worked on politics for the first few months, and then I went to work on the homepage. It was kind of a hybrid job of, like, actually pushing the buttons to rearrange the stuff on the page and making news judgment and placement decisions. But that digital operation was still fairly separate from the sort of core decision-making. Right 
apparatus of the, of the paper. I had a couple of mentors, one in particular, who, who just advised me, apropos of nothing in particular, to consider moving around just to accumulate other experiences. And so I did. I, I kind of, I, there was one conversation that I had where I was just like, well, yeah, I, I, I enjoy doing this, but it's not like the last thing I'll ever do. So maybe, right. maybe I should see about what else is going on there. I sort of, you know, knew a guy who knew a guy. Yes. At the New York Times and sent my That's how this interview happened, by the way. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. I knew a guy who knew a guy who happened to be you. I mean, it is <laughs> basically how like the world operates. It's totally how the world operates. And practicing journalism will do nothing to make you think that any less. <laughs> so my resume landed on the right desk at the time when they you know, had just lifted a hiring freeze. And I took the editing test, which is a monster. It's like they give you... What is this? Is this just at the Times or is this every newspaper? A lot of newspapers, probably most newspapers and most magazines... Or a good number of publications have some kind of editing test. Because they want to weed out. For some position. But the one at the, at the New York Times is sort of famously rigorous. They, they, whatever editing job you're doing, and it, it can be, I mean, you might be like an entry-level copy editor. They give you this test, and your job is to take like five or, I think, five pieces of copy as they were filed by a reporter and take them to a publishable state or get them as close as you can and, and, and explain what would be the choices you made to get there yeah, yeah to get them there so it's the kind of thing where you just drink a lot of coffee and hunker down how long do you have to do it when i was doing it they give you two weeks but that's a, that's a decent amount of time but i ha i mean the way that it just sort of happened it's also very stressful two weeks my life at that <laughs> moment like i just took a sunday and i was like you did them all in one day this thing out yeah because there just wasn't and who wants to be thinking about it for two weeks? Yeah, and, and I was I was also so eager. I mean, once it once it became like the prospect of working at the New York Times was like such a game changer for me. Like, right. It just felt like a different category from anything I had done up to that point or really thought that I could do. Right. So when that was on the table, it was I'm of course I'm, I'm going to get this. Yes. Everything. So I did the test, and they had me up for interviews. You know, I, I took the red eye from L.A. over Memorial Day weekend six years ago and didn't sleep a wink and went in to the Times building and interviewed with nine people. <laughs> Holy moly. And then hung out in New York for the weekend and went home. And I was, I was working there in mid-July, that's when I started. And then, you know, I, I just was sort of a, a yeoman for the first couple of years, just trying to get the rhythms of the place and understand how it worked. I was sort of executing the instructions of the, super, the chain of supervising editors. Uh, around the, the homepage in particular. Right. So they would say, let's move this story into the lead spot and move this one down here. And you'd make it happen. And my job would be like to operate the content management system to do that, but also, you know, if this story moves down here, it's going to need a different length of headlines. So you have to... So you're learning the guts of the system that worked internally for the Times, yeah. which led you into the other roles that you started taking. Yeah, and then this thing on, on what became NYT Now opened up and I, I went and worked on developing that app and came back to the newsroom and just sort of gradually got drawn back into the core news operation, which is where I started at the Times. But, but now you're in a different role. Yeah. Do you foresee yourself, I would assume you want to be there for a while. I, that's but my who plan. knows, right? Yeah. Like, I think it's really unlikely that I would work for another newspaper. Because you're at the top right now. There's, well, I, you know, I, I don't want to be 
braggy about it, but I do, I do think like having been at the LA Times, which was one of the nation's premier newspapers, and then going to the New York Times, it's like there's just, there's not another place, and part of this goes to the, the sort of benevolence of the family that owns the paper. And that's something that just doesn't, that used to be how, news, how major newspapers right. worked. There were the Chandlers in LA and the, I don't remember, the Wall Street Journal family, you know, and the Washington Post, like all of these people had these sort of people, like people who were really invested in them and it wasn't just, it wasn't just a business. And the, the Times is really the only place where that's still true, where there's this familial proprietorship of the place and they're really, they're invested in it, not as a money-making vehicle, but as a basically as a public service. And I don't mean to sound cheesy about it, but right. like having spent as as much time there as I have, I've seen sort of pretty clearly over and over again that that's that's what's going. Well, on. and they've had the opportunity to sell, and they have not. Right, and the the family has very firm control of the place, so there's very little risk of that. Michael, thank you for taking the time to speak with me about all this stuff. Did we miss anything? What are we? Oh, I don't, I don't know. I we don't talk about so, so much. I, no, yeah, it was a really good conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for taking the time. I really appreciate yeah, it. Of course. Thanks for coming to the, the Bushwick Bureau. Yes. <laughs> Have a good one, man.